Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I, as ever, am Scott Jones. And I remain Bill Bohr. We remain with no remainder. Yeah, we are recording this the day before the election. The day before the election. And the title of this podcast, Election Matters. Yes. <laughs> but uh, we are continuing our Reformation series. So but before we do that, should we just keep up with current events? <laughs> we should. By the way, I've come up with a new award that I'm going to periodically give out. What is that? It's going to be called uh, Profiles and Discourage. Okay. And today's award goes to uh, Governor Bill Weld. Uh, is Weld or Weldon? Weld, who's the vice president for the uh, Libertarian Party. Oh, uh, the Massachusetts governor, yeah, Bill, Bill Weld. Yeah, Bill Weld. Uh, I think it's pretty uh, remarkable and in some ways uh, uh, quite admirable that the vice president candidate for the uh, for the Libertarian Party is actually – in de facto campaigning, cam, cam, uh, campaigning for Hillary Clinton. Yeah, he said he said that uh, basically we're hoping to come in second or something like you know, that, that. His goal is to, you know that they would have Trump. He wants Trump to finish third. Yeah, no, and every opportunity he has, he's said some good things about Hillary Clinton. So uh, I think that uh, that that says volumes. <laughs> do you think he'll vote for themselves, or do you think he'll vote for Hillary? What is? Aleppo. Uh, well, no, he's from Massachusetts because his vote does. Uh, it doesn't That's, matter. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't. Uh, I, I don't. Fun. I don't know who he'll vote for. But anyway, my first uh, profile in discourage goes to Bill, former Governor Bill Weld, who is the vice president candidate for the Libertarian Party. Way to go, Bill! And does believe in driver's licenses, like his <laughs> running mate, Gary Johnson. That yeah. was a firm. Yeah. So that's one update. Uh, other updates. Westworld. We officially, our minds are blown. They are. It's uh, an amazing series. If any of the creators want to come on this podcast, we will talk with you. We are, our minds are blown. It's yeah, blown. Very impressed. Very impressed. And you last night uh, on on Twitter. I put it out there and I don't know. I'm going to stand by it, but I'm still, you You and I talked a little bit and I'm still, but I'm, I'm staying firm with, I, I, I think the only humans we've seen are maybe the two guys that come on the train. There was something weird about that train. Right. And I don't know what it is, but I don't, I'm not confident we've seen a human being yet. So you think that, you know, you talked last night, you think all of the staff are... The corporation... Are, yeah, I think, well, I, and again, I think it's a really fascinating theory, and I give you kudos for being bold with it. Uh, the more I thought about it, when I woke up this morning, I'm, I'm thinking there are two Fords. Here's my uh, addendum to your bold theory. I think there is... Uh, the android uh, Ford, okay, uh, the Anthony Hopkins character, but the real char- character may actually be Arnold. So Arnold may still be alive. That uh, is possible yeah, too. Yeah, well, he's alive in some ways. Maybe. There is something Matrix esque going on yeah. where I think it were I think it will play into some sort of like there's like sometime some sort of conflict. I think we're hundreds of years in the future from present day. I think humanity and AI are have gone their separate ways, but yet there's some interplay. So, there's something like that going on. 
Well, there was in the first episode, uh, Ford said um, that, you know, it's over. We've reached the pinnacle of evolution. And he he threw it. There was this kind of side comment. I just remembered it uh, where he said, we no longer die. Now, I thought that was just metaphor, but... um, who knows, man? I think you you could be could be on to something. You know, I thought last night again a spoiler alert, but there's this wonderful. I mean, maybe the most poignant scene is when one of the robots uh, who has become uh, who has figured out that that uh, she is a part of this uh, scheme is taken. Uh, she forces, I guess, the one of the medical crew to take her and look at where she actually comes from. That was a that's a fascinating kind of journey that raises all kinds of interesting existential questions that are that are kind of related to our main topic. Today. Yeah, and she seemed more self-aware than the technician. And, yes. and, and that's where I start going back in my mind and thinking, OK, wait a second. Are there tells and cues and clues that like I felt like that was they, they showed a card there a little bit like they did some card showing. And I think maybe there were other more subtle hints that we have to go back and look for. Yeah, I think the technicians are not acting like uh, free will human beings uh, in their response to this. uh, Suddenly this robot has taken over. Absolutely. And also, let's make our election predictions right now. Okay. One day before we are live broadcasting tomorrow, we'll do it via Facebook Live. We might do it via Internet Radio as well. We're, we're exploring. We, we are so cutting edge that we're – our edge is cut the edge of the cutting right. edge. We're so cutting – Edge that we are ahead of ourselves. We don't exactly. even know where we are. We're so we don't. Far ahead. We don't yeah. know. Uh, all right, you're. Well, you you. I think have an interesting one. So you go first, and then I'll follow up. I think it's Hillary Clinton by two points over the national thing. So I think like six points. Six points. And then the electoral college is so bigger over. than what Obama had over Romney. So you'll she'll get over three hundred electoral votes. I think she'll get if, if over three hundred. If she's at six percent, she will. Yeah. Uh, I think to me, the, maybe one of the poetic beauties of this election is that it may be the Hispanic vote. Absolutely. That that um, that actually um, uh, brings her into power. And what what I think is exciting and because and, uh, it doesn't bother me that our country is changing, because frankly, I know a little bit of history about our country. So we've always been this dynamic entity and we're at our best when we have infusion of new uh, peoples from different places who uh, reanimate the American dream. Uh, this may not only be the end of kind of white male America politics, but it may be uh, the first stage of the emerging power of Latino vote. And I, I think I, I welcome that. I think uh, it's um, it's time that we need some people who really believe in our democracy and are not so cynical, because I think there are some some dark shadows uh, gathering. And uh, we need some people who actually understand why this country uh, is is the greatest country in the world. And I don't mean that to denigrate in, in any kind of putting down any other countries, but it is a great experiment, but it is an experiment that's in deep trouble right now. I think one of the biggest missteps of the Trump campaign was when they put the one of their key Hispanic surrogates. And he said, look, you don't understand our culture. I mean, if you let us over the border, there'll be, there'll be taco trucks in every corner. And my wife and I were like, please, like Hillary, that's the strongest argument for Hillary Clinton. Like if we had taco trucks in Langhorn, I feel like Trump lost a segment of the white vote there (laughs) that really likes authentic Mexican food and was hoping that that was actually an asset. Like, hey, here's one of my promises. I promise there will be a walkable taco truck. Sign, sign me up. 
Yeah, I, I think it is. It'll be a Clinton victory. Although I, I, um, it's very, it's interesting that um, uh, the Trump uh, folks do not have um, the organization on the ground, and and that really, I, again, someone who touts himself as being a great businessman who failed to do the basic mechanics of what you need to do to get elected. That you know, without all the other stuff, uh, I, I think that just totally shoots down maybe what everybody thinks. Uh, his strongest attribute is that he's a great leader. He's not a great leader. Well, what if his plan, though, is what if the key to his organization is, is the power of one? And just Kellyanne Conway gets on all the shows election night. He won. And just well, says, it, well, I know numerically this is just phony math. I mean, just liberal media. Phony. And then what if, like, America starts to be like, maybe he did win. And then yeah, somehow, like, all of a sudden Trump's being so Kellyanne Conway. It just, just sort of puts us in some hypnotic days. And then everybody just thinks you know, I heard, he won. I heard this last night. I think it was on Chris Matthews, but I was I actually thought about this earlier. Um, trying to remember when an election was discredited before the vote had even taken place. That there, the talk of an illegitimate election before the election happened. And um, I can't remember the historian that was quoted, but uh, maybe the election of 1860 might be the you know Abraham Lincoln was discredited as a as you know there was all kinds of dis of him before he, w- he was even elected. And Honest Abe, good. Hillary, you crooked. <laughs> and that 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 is a, uh, again, uh, somewhat of an apocalyptic um, statement. But I, I'm, I'm a little I'm a little concerned. Someone asked me, uh, you know, response to the Belmar, you know, which, by the way, I think if you're an evangelical, uh, try not to be offended by the language, but you need to listen to the last couple minutes of Bill Maher, what he said on his last most recent episode. And okay. his interview with the president was great. It was very good. No. And uh, and again, uh, <laughs> we, you know, it's funny. We used to actually, as evangelicals, were concerned that we didn't, that we tried to put the gospel forward and that we really concerned for you know, anyone who's outside the faith, that we could give them an opportunity to to see that, you know, regardless of what your pre, you know, prejudice against Christianity or false conceptions you have, that, you know, the Christ, our Savior, is the most amazing good news in the world. And I would like to say that evangelicals pride themselves on trying to be biblically faithful have nullified their witness to large segments of this American population because of their politics. Billy, you just used the first person plural, we who think of ourselves. Did you just come out, did you self-identify as evangelical? No. Well, you know, that's my roots. I appreciate that. That's who taught me. That's, you know, I learned the gospel. I learned the Bible. Um, and I, you know, encountered Jesus. And, I, you know, it wasn't, they wouldn't have, as, they wouldn't have self-identified as evangelicals, but they were just Bible Christians, the, the, the little Methodist church that was part of the, been built from uh, revivalist meetings and my great-grandfather. So, so no, you're not an evangelical. I, I, I'm appreciative of the fact that I was nurtured in the faith by that tradition. But wow. no, I would not consider. And, you know, frankly. Bill, this, is the sco- this, is, this is totally not what I meant. This is the scoop of the podcast right here. Bill Bohr self-identifies religiously. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. But I, again, and I, that's part of why it grieves me. Not, I'm not, it just grieves me that uh, a vital, vibrant part of the Christian faith that has done a lot of good, and a lot of people are in the faith because of their genuine convictions, has not only nullified their witness, but is, you know, in holding positions that nullify the grace of God. There it is, folks. So now we're moving on. That was our current events. I'm sorry, you got me going. That's good. Well, I, you know, I don't regret getting you going, uh, ever. 
Yeah. We wanted to talk about, we ha- and thank you all for listening to, we kind of did this, Bill had this idea to think about what was, was anything lost in the Reformation? We wound up somebody, Andrew Stravitz, who we thank you for your question and commentary, and yeah. several, Sean Dwyer, several other people uh, who were listeners had incredibly thoughtful things to say, and we wound up doing a follow-up episode. Yeah, and I, I just on, on methodology, I think our we don't we don't agree a hundred percent, or at least we we bring different perspectives. But I've always learned from I've learned more from the people that disagree with me or challenge my thinking than the people who just agree with. Oh, me. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. I and, and so I think again, we need to be able to recapture the ability to disagree in agreeable ways. Because that's how you learn, and I think our back and forth on these topics have been um, have reminded me of that in an age where you don't see much of that anymore. Yeah, and yeah, I agree. I think I've learned a lot, and also I just it made me think a lot more carefully. And again, I was really several people. I, I was just uh, the, the level of thought people put oh, yeah, on yeah. Facebook, both on posts on our page and in private messages. It was, it was just very. Yeah. It, it, it was in a time when I think it's easy to be cynical about our culture and the capacity for substantive discourse and things like that. I was like, oh gosh, there are people that think subtly and Oh yeah, your your questions and comments have pushed us. Yeah. You know, and I we appreciate that. Which is good. We like to be pushed. All right. So So this is Reformation part three, because I think Andrew Stravitz said where you think the Reformation went too far. I think it didn't go far enough. And he might have also been tying into something I said in the Mockingcast where I said that Bart's doctrine of election was the last great corrective, you know, for the sixteenth century. Right. And his corrective was actually inspired by one of the great patristic thinkers in the first place. His 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 reading of Athanasius, I think, uh Helped him correct what we both think are Augustinian excesses. Yeah, absolutely. I remember when I I was sitting outside the outdoor mall near Fox Chapel, Pennsylvania, and I was reading this very volume of the Church Dogmatics, this copy. And I, I remember Bart says that the doctrine of election is the sum of the gospel because of all words that can be said or heard, it is the best. That God elects man, that God is for man too, the one who loves in freedom. It is grounded in the knowledge of Jesus Christ because he is both the electing God and elected man in one. It is part of the doctrine of God, because originally God's election of man is a predestination, not merely of man, but of himself. Its function is to bear basic testimony to eternal, free, and unchanging grace as the beginning of all the ways and works of God. That is the, that is Seitzlatz 32. Right. Uh, and by the way, I, his copy of the Dharma is, is quite worn, so I, he has read this before. And they were used. I bought them used. Yeah. Um, so it might be helpful before we, uh, which we both we agree on, that Bart's corrective is uh, one of the be- most important things that happened in the last hundred years, probably. Absolutely. Really, theologically. So maybe it's important for us to set up the doctrine of election slash predestination so that we can understand both what uh, Bart is saying positively as well as what he is not saying. Yeah, so if you're a basic Augustinian and you think that, that, you know, God— Salvation is a work of it, it. It's less a sick person going to a hospital than somebody that's flatlined and is resuscitated. Right. You know, when you're dead, you can't say, "Hey, please help me." Uh, so, if you think that God's intervention in every 
redemptive moment is something that's uh, the the initiative is is on the divine side. It's not a cooperative project or something. Then you start to think, well, then what about the people that, that don't look saved or don't seem saved or don't seem redeemed? And you start to think, well, you know, look at the Bible. You got Cain and Abel. You, you, yeah. you you've got you got Jews and Gentiles. You know, the chosen. You got you, you know you've got sheep and goats. And well, if God is if God's knowledge is eternal and God knows his own intentions eternally, then it must be... And he's also omnipotent. And he's also omnipotent, all the omnis. <laughs> then it, it must be true that the redeemed are chosen ahead of time, and they're the elect, and the people that are passed over or chosen for less than redemptive ends are the reprobate, so right. to speak. And uh, I meant to say this on our last podcast. I, I think that sometimes... Uh, our best thinkers who have written over a series of times, particularly in the, in the context of polemic, often I think their better thought is on the early part of the polemic because there's something about long extended debates that do not bring out the best in people. I think uh, uh, some of the darker parts of Luther and, and late Luther, who he's, you know, in part he's been hardened by, you know, a couple decades of fighting the polemic with the Catholic Church. I think the same thing is true of uh, St. Augustine. There was more nuances in his earlier works when he was dealing with this issue, um, again, without getting into all of it, it, it kind of arises out of a debate with a uh, maybe uh, a, a man named Pelagius, uh, who was a monk who was somewhere from the British Isles, most likely. And in many ways, Pelagius articulated uh, what would be the more traditional view, uh, particularly in ascetic Christianity, that, you know, we have free will, and that once we have received the baptism, of, you know, we've received the Holy Spirit, then we have the potential to live in that free will, uh, aided by grace, um, but that we can live a life that when God says, you know, Christ is, be, or God, you know, Paul says, be perfect as God's perfect, or that we can do that. So um, Augustine begins challenging this kind of elite view of Christianity, and that's always what's ironic when people kind of say, let's overthrow the tyranny of Augustine. Augustine was actually really fighting for the common man who doesn't have the convenience to live in a monastic community. He's also fighting against his own initial idealized view of what the Christian life was going to be, the life for the super, if you would, the super spiritual athletes. But as the debate wears on with Pelagius and then, you know, those who come after him, uh, his writing gets much darker. And, and two of his last works, which I think are uh, two of my least favorite works of Augustine that are written in the last couple of years of his life on the perseverance of uh, on no, it's on 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 election and also on uh, providence. He really articulates what we would call a double predestination view, that God chooses some for salvation and God chooses some for damnation. You know, in the Western tradition, which, you know, the Western tradition is Augustinian, uh, you know, Thomas Aquinas believed in uh, an Augustinian view of election. You know, people try to back off a little bit from this idea of a double predestination, one that just kind of let it be in the mystery of God. You see things similar in Bonaventure about that. Um, but in, in the late medieval period, the period that uh, Luther is born out of, and in some levels, uh, Calvin takes uh, the new theology and embodies it in his in his theological framework. Uh, this idea of the absolute sovereignty and independence of God is the, kind of the philosophical theological view of God, and so uh, so God again is seen to be able to 
you know, should by nature do whatever he wants to do, and that he does elect some for. You don't find this so much in Luther, but you certainly find it in Calvin. And Calvin sees it as a liberating document, the doctrine that the idea that God sovereignly chooses, that I can kind of rest in that, and that, you know, God gets to do what God wants to do. Uh, and for Calvin, it was not a dark docu- uh, doctrine, but uh, certainly for the Calvinists to come after him, they 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 take it and run with that. Yeah, it's interesting because Luther does say, though, that the bondage of the will was the most important thing he ever wrote. Yeah, no. So it's implicit there. I mean, although it's not as worked out. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's interesting. If, you're, if your doctrine of election is Christocentric as opposed to theocentric, it feels a little different. Yeah, you know, yes. Uh, yeah, if it, yeah. And I think that's, and this is Bart's insight. I mean, one of the things that Bart says I think is great is that, you know, Part of the problem with doctrine of predestination is sometimes it just becomes like it, it, it degenerates into a cynic's theological anthropology. If you're Augustine dealing with difficult people or Calvin and people are like making farting noises while you're preaching and you know giving you the finger and stuff and some of that, that you just think, well, those are the reparate, those are the people. <laughs> you, yeah, right. you start, you start because even well, Calvin will say, right. That you can't, even though there are two kinds of people, you have to treat everyone like right. they're like. But I mean, come on! Once you have a, two kinds of people, you know, on your grumpy days, which we all have, you're going to start saying, "Well, you know, sheep, goat, sheep, goat, 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 sheep, sheep, goat." I think yeah, what's interesting thing about Calvin. Calvin seemed to be uh, able to find peace within his own doctrines, but the children of Calvin, he certainly left them. <laughs> they eat their young. Yeah, he left them a lot, and also he left them the sense of anxiety. If I'm if I'm part of the elect, one would argue that the great awakening and the birth, ultimate birth of evangelicalism in this country was born out of people who were worried and trying to figure out whether or not they were elect or not. That's really what was behind the great first great awakening. Yeah, and I think that that's because for Luther, salvation was utterly gratuitous. But you, you, if he said, if you said, well, how do I know I'll persevere? Can I be assured I'll I'm really elect? Well, you just look to the word of the gospel. You look to the you know the the absolution you hear. You look to you know you look to and which also is basically looking to Christ and then you know right. and wake up tomorrow and look again for Calvin. Now you could look inside and see the inner test of the spirit but then one of the best things calvin one of the weirdest things calvin says but you know he says this in hebrews when they talk about the book of hebrews talks about if you fall away you can't come back you know verse like that he has this doctrine of false faith so god actually creates this gets back to westworld god actually creates a false sense of assurance in some people who are really but he's like look but to pastor they look alike they feel like they smell like I'm thinking he must have been either he he was I, this is his own that's a weird do- to come up with I mean that's a, that is a gem well you know it's funny in when when you read the sermon sheep about sheep and the goats in Augustine it feels very pastoral in other words you know we don't know only God knows and so you if you start meddling and saying oh this person's elect and that person's not you could be rooting you know you don't know what you're doing so you kind of leave that to God that's that's Augustine at his best but you're right I think it is a little it gets that if God, once that horse is out of the barn no, it's hard to put it back yeah, in it's hard and to this put is back in the bar. I agree. You know, we're, we're, you hear this language in the Reformers a lot, in Kevin Adams, that the elect or those who find themselves united to Christ, they deal with the benevolent Father of the Lord Jesus, that they're united to yeah. the Spirit. Now, the reprobate deal with the hidden God, and, you know, the left hand. And so, it, but once you have that out of the barn, that there's kind of these two sides together. How do I know I'm really dealing with the right, one that? And, yeah. and so, and then you wind up saying there really might be a God behind the one revealed in the history of Israel and Jesus. Maybe he's more arbitrary. Maybe, and and so you wind up right. actually with an unbaptized doctrine of God. 
Well, and that also, yeah, absolutely. And that also uh, is part of, you know, what why people accuse Augustine on his dark days to have never gotten quite over his Manichaeanism. Yeah. Yeah. And now, but let's, let's add the counter problem. So there are, there've always been, you know, for instance, the church never was purely Augustinian. It was funny. One of our viewers accused me of being a little bit Pelagian, which I, I, uh, I, you get more, way more accusations. Than I do. I, I get accused. I'm just a target. But uh, the truth of the matter is, the church is never full. It never has been fully Augustinian uh, in practice. It, it, so that either makes it semi-Augustinian, or if if you want to be polemic, semi-Pelagian. Very few people can drink Augustine without ice. You have to. You have to water it down. Yeah, you have to water it down. So. You know, in let's just talk about in the Western Protestant movement. So perhaps one of the greatest uh, uh, influences of, of Protestant Christianity that's a counterstep to uh, or counterstatement to Calvinism is the, um, you know, what the teachings of Jacob Arminius, which probably are most popularized uh, in the traditions of Wesley. Wesley would include not only all the Methodists and all the Wesleyan churches, but you could say many of the you know, Pentecostals are kind of the grandchildren of the Wesleyan. The tradition. Nazarenes. The Nazarenes would be the the children of Wesley, yeah, or the uh, grandchildren of Wesley. So there's large segments. Do we have Nazarene listeners? I don't know. If we have, tell, let us know. If you're listening here and you have, if you're Nazarene, or it's a very interesting, most of the Nazarenes I know know what generation Nazarene are. Like, I'm third generation Nazarene. Like, it's very interesting. I, I don't know why that is, but it, it. But I'm just saying. So if you're out there, let us, send us a message on yeah, Facebook. Yeah. Let us know. Yeah, I used to hang out around Nazarenes for a semester or so. I went to actually at the Wesleyan. You have the most eclectic religious uh, like story. <laughs> I, was, I, was at a I mean, if you're not the, it's top 10. We are West, I was at a Wesleyan theological convention, but it's part of That what, sounds like a blast. It's part of what helped me uh, go back to Calvinism. But anyway, so, so there is, you know, and again, I think this would be part of our own part of the narrative of the of the modern person and so and and if you're reading church history for instance in the anglican tradition arminianism is a synonym for liberalism in in the history of the anglican tradition and particularly in like the 17th century and the 18th century so this idea that humans are free that you know and there are plenty of bible passages that certainly seem to presuppose that but part of the quandary we have now, regardless of it's religious or or just trying to live our life, is that we have uh, our own version of the ancient fatalism uh, idea of how much freedom do we do we really have? You know, uh, uh, we've tried not to spoil the last night's Westworld episode, but I read the New York Times review of it today, and if we could go back and break down our origins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and we would be maybe have a very different view of exactly how free we really are. Yeah, and I think for Bart, the the important thing is that is not that there's two kinds of people, but that there's one kind of God. That God, there's no God behind Jesus Christ, right. and and God is that for for most pre-moderns it, Christians in the Western tradition that God is the that, that Jesus Christ. You could talk about Jesus who eternally existed before creation is the eternal word. You can talk about him as in some sense the object of election. Like, you know, he's he's the one who we're electing him and he's God's chosen missionary, uh, you know, in the Trinity, uh, in the power of the Spirit to go into a sin-soaked world east of Eden and be the Redeemer. But Bart says, no, Jesus can't just be the object of election, but needs to be the subject too. Mm. That that the God is 
there's not a God behind the decision to be God for us in and as Jesus Christ. So there's not, there's no eternal son that's not forever destined to be the son of Mary. There's not a point where the Trinity is not eternally marked as bound up with God's relationship and covenant with human beings. Right. So divinity was always heading towards humanity. Yes. Yeah. Right. That's part. I mean, one of the great book of essays, a great place to get into Karl Barth, if you're looking, it's called The Humanity of God. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, the question isn't whether God's really human, it's whether we're, we're really human or not. Yeah. No, I, I uh, you know, I've said in the past that uh, uh, the great, I, I said this probably in a sermon right when we began this new millennium, that the great challenge to me of the 21st century is not defending God, but it's defending the human race. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting, uh, Bart, uh, in part, and this is how I've really, a couple of things influenced me to get involved in church history because I was heading towards doing academic work in the New Testament. But I was at Princeton Seminary, and, every, you know, if there was a health class, you would have had to read Bart, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. And I was, you know, reading Bart, and of course, like, if you're reading Bart, you're, you've you got to read the footnotes. And I kept uh, I kept coming across Athanasius. And um, I thought, you know, before I ma- try to master Bart, or before I try to really familiarize myself with Bart, I need to uh, to study Athanasius. And uh, I didn't get back to Bart until like 15 years later. I, I, I ended up, that became my uh, kind of passion to study the early church. But, you know, what I love about Bart is, um, because there's a different kind of piety, and of course it's still the piety of the Eastern Orthodox Church, this idea of, of, of really the redeemed human is divinized. You know, in other words, that uh, we in the West tend to emphasize the biggest problem is sin. But I think the Eastern Church recognizes that for Paul, there's two big problems. One is sin, but the other is death. So in other words, both we have a moral, spiritual problem, but we have a mortal, spiritual problem. Yeah, do, we, do we die because we sin, or do we sin because we die? Right. And so there's a sense where, and that's why, and again, uh, my professor of blessed memory, uh, J. Christian Becker, the, the essential nature of the resurrection is that, you know, Human needs to be trans. You know, humanity needs to be transformed to be in in the presence of God. Why I think Bart is such an essential um, voice in this post, whatever post, all these posts that were in time is that in some levels he 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 keeps that doctrine, but he reminds us that it's equally important that God becomes human. In other words, the humanity of God is is more of the doctrine we need to rescue our humanity than the idea of the divinization of the human, uh, which I still think is an interesting idea. But uh, I think that's part of the brilliance of Bart, and particularly born, at, you know, in the very midst of the crucifixion uh, of, of 100 million people that happened during World War II. And I, don't, I mean, I mean that, but really, a hundred million people died while in the back while he was while he was formulating his thought. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he lived in a dark, dark time and lived hopefully in it. I mean, Bart as a guy was. It's funny. There's the story of one of his graduate assistants late in his life, Christmas Eve. It's snowing. He's sitting in his home in Switzerland. He said, "What are you doing?" He said, "I'm looking for Jesus." And uh, it's just the guy was just full of full of well, full of hope. I mean, and I, and was, I love that picture you have of him preaching in the ruins of. Uh, oh yeah, if, yeah. Uh, teaching. Yeah, that was the those those are from Dogmatics and Outline. I mean, that's when he was. He, those were the lectures that lectures in, the, in a, where was that? Where it was it in Berlin? Berlin. Yeah, the unit yeah. Hit after World War II. Um, so this idea that that there is double predestination in Bart, but the double predestination is that Christ is both the elect for salvation and mission, which again that's also an important corrective of how some people think about predestination or election. Election is always for service and mission. The people of Israel were chosen to be a light to the nation. Yeah, 
Uh, they weren't chosen just to, I mean, they, they were chosen eventually to bring the nations back to the living God, but that, uh, that Christ is also damned, that there's a kind yeah, of... Yeah, he's the, he's the elect. And there's only one reprobate, and it, it's Christ. Yeah, that there's no... And I, this idea that uh, even if hell exists, no one will ever go through the same kind of hell that Christ did on the cross. Yeah, and there's no... There aren't... There's nobody... I mean, Bart... And again, this is where... People criticize Bart for this, but I don't. I don't in the sense of... There are things I, I, I would be critical of Bart for, of course. And, you know, if I'm critical of Bart, what does that mean? Because I'm so accomplished theologically. <laughs> but I mean, something... You know, people will say, well, you know, this sounds universalist or it sounds like, but Barnes is like, if, if hell, he says, I'm not a universalist, but I mean, again, I think he probably hopes God is, but if there, if hell is populated, he would say it's because in some mystery, God allows for some mysterious reason, some people to persist in rejection of their election, but that there's nobody whom that's their destiny. There are not two kinds of people. There are not a group of people that are destined for redemption and a group that are destined for perdition. That there's only one kind of person that, that, that people that are, and this is, you know, he's thinking in Ephesians and Colossians, one of right, all things right. in Christ, that Christ is the lens through which we see both God and humanity. Yeah, and I think any, it's funny, if, if anyone knows one verse in the New Testament, and particularly those of us who were near, reared in evangelical uh, backgrounds, you know, for God so loved the world. You know? Yeah. And and so, again, any doctrine that somehow wants to negate the universal love of God is actually denying the very nature of who God is. And so, that I mean, again, I, the rest of the verse is important. I'm not saying it's not important that whoever believes in him, you know, but I'm about to begin with the statement that for God so loved the cosmos. And it's actually not I mean, the word there, the Greek word's cosmos. So, you know, if we have you know, any little alien cousins out there running around, or we actually are the cousins of the aliens or whatever, that, that they're part of that cosmic love. Yeah, they're going to come and kill us. That's what Stephen Hawking says. Well, I, I think Stephen, yeah. yeah, I, I'm, yeah. If, if they exist, yeah. then they find us. E.T. E. is a fantasy story. Yeah, right? Independence uh, Day is, would be closer to the, revo- the evolution of things. But, I, I, you know, if, if, when, we talk, when, when I think about Bart this way, I, it reminds me of Dorothy Sayers' uh, commentary about, about the fire in, in the grand, in the Divine Comedy. I mean, I, maybe I've mentioned this before. There's fire in hell. There's fire in purgatory, and there's fire in heaven. You know, in hell is the fire of torment, in purgatory is the fire of purgation, of purging one's sins, and, and, and uh, you know, heaven is, is the fire of the divine presence. But Dorothy Sayers is, you misread it if you see it as different fires. It's all the love of God. You know, in other words, in, in, in hell, you experience the love of God as torment because you don't want it. Yeah, yeah. the, 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 the thing that changes is the subject and, and the subject's relationship to the love of God, right. not God's disposition to the sinner. Absolutely. And I think that, to me, is, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful gift that Bart has given us uh, to be reminded of, of that universal love and also the mystery of the shadow of the darkness. I mean, from Bart's view, you take very seriously, my God, my God, why you? Yeah. Say, you don't. You don't. The cry of dereliction is is is. You don't. You don't. There's no. It is the. It is the horrible moment that it actually that the gospel writers portray. The other thing too that I think is a sort of postmodern payoff that Bruce McCormick has talked about this. The great Bart Scott from Princeton Seminary that he talks about. He said, I, I don't know if he's written about this, but I've read lectures he's given about this. That I don't know if he's publicly written about it as of late, but it says that you know there's a, an ontology of election, and 
in the postmodern milieu where people are always like, well, what is a self? Am, am, I, right. am I really a self or am I just a bunch of actions right. I make up? Or, right. And then when you add neurological questions to this and depth psychology, along with philosophical questions of what, what is the human subject? What is human identity? And we're saying, you know, there's something to be teased down here about in Bart that really who I am is not primarily a question of my acts or sense of identity, but is constituted by an act and decision made about me and for me before time began and God's own choice to be God for and with us. And that, that, that really your, your own experience of identity is secondary mm. to the identity that was chosen for you in God's eternal wisdom and election. That's powerful because he's creator. He would have to, he, he, from the foundations of time, before the foundations of time, was Redeemer. Yeah. Yeah. So, for God so loved Hillary Clinton, for God so loved Donald Trump, for God so loved the supporters of both of them, and Don't forget else. Billy Bush. Even Billy Bush. Well, I won't back down. No, I won't back down. You can stand me up at the gates of hell But I won't back down Gonna stand my ground Won't be turned around And I'll keep this world from dragging me down Gonna stand my ground And I won't back down There ain't no easy way out Hey, I will stand my ground And I won't back down Well, I know what's right I got just one life In a world that keeps on pushing me around But I stand my ground And I won't back down Hey, baby There ain't no easy way out Stand my ground And I won't back down No, I won't back down